because there are many. He taught with miracles, with signs and wonders. He taught with compassion. He had a tremendous amount of love for, for people. He taught with logic. He was a master of logic. People tried to corner him, and he was always he always knew what to say or what to do. And there could be a series of sermons presented on the ways that Jesus taught. But this morning, what I wanted to do, I picked three things that we could look at, ways that Jesus taught that we can apply to ourselves as teachers, as preachers, and just in general as Christians. Now, you might say, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a preacher. If you're a faithful Christian, you're a teacher. That's the bottom line. If you are a faithful Christian, you're a teacher. You recall in the book of Acts, these men, these apostles were commissioned to go into all the world and teach and preach and make disciples. Time and time again, they were beaten, they were cast in prison, they were threatened. They were told over and over, you do not teach in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, verse 20, Peter spoke up and he said, we can't help but, but, but uh, talk about the things that we've seen and heard. How much more do you think our attitude ought to be as Christians knowing that we have the entire word of God? We ought to be ready and willing to teach and to preach those, to bring that good news to those that are lost. Hebrews 5.12 says that for by this time you ought to be teachers. He was talking about us growing spiritually, maturing spiritually. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's a very reasonable expectation that you and I are to be teachers. We're supposed to be able to take that good news to those that are lost. Number one, when Jesus taught, he taught with authority. I cannot overemphasize the importance of this one single point because without it, the rest of this lesson doesn't mean anything. When Jesus taught, he taught with authority. He worked his entire ministry to prove that he was who he said he was. In John chapter 20, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book. In verse 31, But these are written, that ye may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Here's a man who came to this earth, and he claimed that he was the Son of God. He claimed that he could forgive sins. You know, one of the first logical questions that any of us might ask is, can you prove it? Can you prove that you are the Son of God? And Jesus did this throughout his entire ministry. In Matthew chapter 8, you remember the scene where there was a storm and they were on a boat. Jesus woke up and he said, oh, he said, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Here's a man who claimed that he was the son of God. When he spoke to those winds and he spoke to the sea, they obeyed him. This man had authority. In Matthew chapter 9, there was a paralytic that was brought to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he saw that he had faith. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine how the Jews off to the side fell. They immediately reasoned in their hearts. They said, who is this man? He speaks blasphemy. He can't forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said, what do you think is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise and walk? He said, so that you know that I have power on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. He proved that he was the son of God. There was no doubt in these people's minds that this man was different. The way he spoke and taught was different. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why were these people astonished at Jesus' teaching? Verse 29 tells us, 
for he taught them as one having authority. There's a big difference when you talk to somebody who knows what you're talking about versus someone that just wants to give you their opinion. You and I today as teachers need to speak with the authority of God. There was a time when Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath in Luke chapter 4. It says that they were astonished at his teaching for his word, his word was with authority. There was a neat scene in John chapter 7 where there were some officers who were sent to go arrest Jesus. That was their job. That was their task. You go arrest Jesus. They came back empty-handed, and this is what they said in verse 46. No man ever spoke like this man. There was something very, very different about Jesus. He spoke with authority. In Matthew 28, we call this sometimes the Great Commission. I don't know that it's actually ever called that anywhere in the Bible itself, but this was the Great Commission. You can think of this as Jesus' ministry built up to this one single moment. These are some of the final words that he, that, that he spoke to his apostles. Beginning in verse 18, it says that all authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. Go, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Look at how those set of passages both begins and ends. Jesus establishes his authority. Verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In verse 20, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Jesus proved who, that, 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 that he was who he said he was. He spoke with authority and people saw a difference in how he taught and how he acted. What does that mean for you and I as Christians, as teachers, as preachers? You know, we're not the direct son of God like Jesus was. So can we, can we speak with the same authority as God does or as Jesus did in his ministry? Absolutely. We're told in 2 uh, Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that this word is God-breathed. It is God-given. These are the words of God. He has equipped us to be able to speak with the same authority that Jesus did. If I quote a verse to you this morning, like Mark 16, 15, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And we'll stop there at that verse. Do I have the right to say that with God-given, heaven-approved authority? You better believe it. And it's not because I said it, but it's because it's what God said. As teachers and preachers, so long as we use this word, we can speak with the same authority as Jesus, the exact same authority. You know, one of, the, one of the things about authority, when people come to accept and beyond that, when they come to respect God's authority, certain things start to happen. Certain things start to change. The way we dress should change. The way we talk should change. The way we act, the way we worship, everything about us should change so long as we accept and respect the authority of God. But what happens when people don't, when they don't respect the authority of God? What happens when people want to go their own way? You know, we know that there are many false teachers out there. We could talk about the number of things that they speak falsely about. We could talk about water baptism. We could talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, women's roles in the church. Those are all major false doctrines that people teach against because they don't respect the authority of God. They've not looked at what the word of God has said. 
everything starts out small. Everything starts out small. This morning, I want to talk to you about something that I have seen become more and more common over the past few years, and it's so discouraging. And it's among teachers and preachers that are in the Lord's church. I want to give you an example, and I want you to follow along with me and think about how many times you've seen this, maybe with a guest speaker here at Pippin, or maybe somewhere else that you've visited. And let's, look, let's, just, let's just think about, would this be how God wants us to conduct ourselves? Imagine this, the announcer walks up on stage. He talks to you about those that are sick, those that need the prayers of the church. He talks to you about some area events that you might want to attend. And he may even end those announcements with a prayer. And at this point, the announcer has set the stage for our worship service. He's the first person that you see. He's getting our minds directed toward worshiping God, God Almighty. The next person that walks up here is the song leader. Hopefully he's chosen songs that lift high the name of God, praise and honor to God Almighty. And we sing these songs. At this point, our mind should be becoming directly and very keenly focused on God. That's why we're here, to worship. We should be thinking about God. After that, we have the person that comes up and reads scripture. We have that blessing of opening up the word of God to read from his word. At this point, our minds shouldn't be anywhere but directly focused on God. That's what our minds are prepared for, for worship. After that, someone comes and leads a prayer. We get to exercise that beautiful, beautiful blessing of going to God Almighty and calling him Father. To give him thanksgiving, to give him praise, and to thank him, and to make our petitions known. Brethren, at this point in the worship service, our minds shouldn't be anywhere but totally uh, directed at God, totally directed at God. And the preacher walks up here. The preacher walks up here and the first thing he does is tell a joke. Or he wants to tell you about his weekend. Or he wants to tell you about his family vacation. Or he wants to tell you a story that he heard last week that was funny. And five or ten minutes have gone by and our minds are so far from God because that man took all the attention away from God and he put it on himself. It's not story time. It's not comedy hour. We're here to worship God. We're not here to be entertained. Now you might quickly say, Adam, that's just your opinion. If a preacher wants to tell a few jokes, if he wants to tell some stories to help draw the crowd in, he can do that. I want us to look at that question just for a few minutes. And we're going to do so by looking and asking ourselves the most important question that any of us could ever ask about anything. And that question is found in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the scripture? What does God want us to teach and preach? What does God expect out of us whenever we conduct ourselves in the assembly of the saints? We're going to begin like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, there's, very, there's three small words, but very, very powerful words. What did Paul tell Timothy to preach? He said, preach the word. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. You don't want to say to be instant or be ready in season and out of season. But Paul told Timothy to preach the word. That was his task. Preach the word. Have we forgotten what the word is? It's a book. It's a collection of 66 books. We all have one probably in our lap right now. But it's so much more than that. Listen to the way John chapter 1 verse 1 describes the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now watch this. And the Word was 
God. The words in this book are made manifest by God. He embodies this word. The word and God are one and the same. We're told to preach this, and that's it. Hebrews 4.12 says that the, that, the, that the word of God is living. It's powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen to what the word of God will pierce. It will pierce soul and spirit, marrow and joints. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached to those people, he preached the word of God, and what happened? It cut their hearts. The word of God is powerful. It's extremely powerful. If we can't capture the attention and the hearts and minds of individuals with the word of God, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. God does not need us to supplement his word with humor and jokes and stories. It's not just a 30-minute window to fill up for speakers. It's a God-given opportunity to deliver this. The word of God. What does God expect out of us in the assembly of the saints? Psalm 89.7 says it like this. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. Two very important words there that God expects out of you and I. He is to be feared and revered. Hebrews 12.28 says that we are to have grace by which we must serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There's those two words again, reverence and fear. Just in a very few short passages, we've seen Paul tell Timothy to preach the word. We know the word is God. We know the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharp. I don't see how any of that is compatible with a teacher in a Bible class or a preacher getting up here and taking the attention away from God and putting it on himself. You remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip was told to go preach or to go meet the Ethiopian eunuch. When he got there, the eunuch was reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody teach me? And in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and he preached Jesus to him. That's what Philip preached was Jesus. That's it. God is a spirit. In John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God expects us to worship him and conduct ourselves in a certain manner when it comes to worship. There's no way around that. Can you imagine hearing one of the sermons preached by Peter or Stephen or Paul or the Lord himself and hearing such things as humor and jokes and stories? Now, now, Jesus taught in stories and parables. I'm not talking about that. But if you look at those parables that Jesus taught, they were short, they were direct, and they had great meaning for the lesson that was being taught. Those can be very, very effective in a sermon. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about those types, of, those types of stories. When Stephen and Paul preached, they preached and made the people so mad they took them out and stoned them. But they preached the word. That's all they preached was the word. My... My point in going down this entire path is this. If we're not careful, we can lose that respect for the authority of God. We may not be guilty of teaching that water baptism is not essential, but we can be guilty of going down the wrong path in our worship to God. I fear that we're losing some of that respect in some places. I've picked on preachers and teachers for the last few minutes, but this goes well beyond them. This is the whole congregation that I'm talking about. When that preacher is telling jokes, are you laughing? 
Are we encouraging that kind of behavior from, from the speaker? I hope not. What about prayer? When that man is leading us in prayer, are we praying with him or are we just waiting for the amen? I hope that we're praying with that person. There's so much power in prayer. What about singing? From time to time, I have the privilege and honor, and that's what it is, a privilege and an honor, to be able to lead singing here. And I'm going to be as open and honest as I know how to be with you right now. Not everyone sings, and it's obvious. People just stand there and they don't sing. That is not optional. That's a part of worship to God that we have to be, to be a part of. I can't tell if you're praying. I can't tell if you're listening to the speaker. But people can tell when you're not singing. I heard a preacher recently say at a gospel meeting that he was visiting somewhere and the young man that walked forward to assist on the Lord's table was wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a big frog cartoon on his t-shirt. I don't think anyone is saying that what this young man was wearing was, was wrong or sinful or immodest, but he went on to say this. He said, how would you feel if you were at your mother's funeral, your mother's funeral, and the man officiating the funeral was wearing that jeans and t-shirt? This table up here says, in remembrance of me, everything that we do inside this worship service needs to be with respect and reverence toward God. We cannot forget why we're here. We're not just going through the motions. We can't ever lose sight as teachers and preachers of teaching and preaching with the authority of God. And that affects every single thing that we do. I'll say one more thing and then I'll move on from this point. If you've never taken the time to thank Brother Randy for the amount of respect and reverence and integrity that he shows this pulpit and any pulpit that he gets behind, you need to. We need more men who are willing to do exactly what Paul told Timothy, and that's preach the word. And that's it. Nothing more. Number one, when Jesus taught, he taught with authority. Number two, when Jesus taught, he taught an absolute truth, not a relative truth. There is a big, big difference in these two concepts. What is a relative truth or what is relativism? It's the idea that, that truth, that doctrine, that knowledge, that even morality is relative to the situation or context in which you're in. That's a mouthful. Let me repeat that. Relativism or relative truth says that, that knowledge, doctrine, teaching, even morality is relative to the situation that you're in. What this means is that truth can vary from person to person, from situation to situation, from context to context. Is that what the Bible teaches? This is a very, very slippery slope for those that, that, that teach and practice a relative truth. If I tell you this morning that abortion is wrong, if I just make that statement, abortion is wrong, the person that believes in a relative truth would tell you that what you're really saying is that you believe abortion is wrong, but I believe that abortion is okay, and we can both be right. Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. I think we all know the answer to that question. Let's look at some of the things that can happen whenever you approach the Word of God as a relative truth versus an absolute truth. Someone might say, well, I know that baptism means immersion, but... You know, times have changed. We can sprinkle now, and it has the same effect. We can look at homosexuality. We know the Bible condemns it from Old Testament to New Testament. But a person that, that uses relative truth might say, yeah, but you know, times have really changed. That was really just specific for them back then. 
God accepts that now. He's okay with it now. Is that what the Bible teaches us? Absolutely not. And it's dangerous. Let's look at some of the things the Bible says about an absolute truth. We've already mentioned John chapter 1, verse 1, that the Word is God. The Word is God. By very definition, if you believe in God, that means you believe in deity. That means you believe in something that is perfect and completely forever unchanging. Completely unchanging. Listen to the way Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. All singular references there. He said that he is the truth. There's only one truth to be taught. Luke 21.33 says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will by no means pass away. When you look at the Bible and what it teaches, it is absolute. It's unchanging. If God will let this earth stand for two million more years, the same biblical laws that govern marriage, divorce, and remarriage will be the same laws that govern marriage, divorce, and remarriage two million years from now. Now, we as humans might try to change that at the state or the, or the federal level. But the institution of marriage is not man-made. It's God-made. And his laws are the ones that govern that. It's an absolute truth. Malachi 3.6 declares, For I am the Lord, I do not change. I do not change. Listen to the way James 1.17 says it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. You and I worship a God that is unchanging, he's perfect, and therefore his truth, the word, does not change. What makes anyone think they have the right to change the intended meaning of God's word? Shame on us if we're ever guilty of that. Second Peter 1.20 says that knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. If I interpret one verse this way and you interpret one verse this way, one or both of us is completely wrong. It can't be both ways. One or both of us are wrong. There's an absolute truth to be taught, and that's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught an absolute truth. Too many people try to conform this to their lifestyle when what should happen is we conform ourselves to this. That's what needs to happen. We need to change. The lesson here for us as teachers, preachers, Christians is obvious. When we teach or we preach or we even mention this word of God, we need to do so in an absolute, completely unchanging way. It is an absolute truth that does not change. Number one, Jesus taught with authority. Number two, Jesus taught a total, complete, absolute truth. And number three, when Jesus taught, he rebuked. He rebuked people. I don't, I don't know of many Christians who actually like a confrontation. Matter of fact, most people, especially in the Lord's church, we go above and beyond to try to keep peace and harmony among the brethren. But if we're not careful, God can take a back seat to us trying to be polite or trying to be nice. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. That's how much he loved us. John 3.17 says that he didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Does that mean that Jesus never condemned anybody? Does it mean that Jesus never rebuked anybody? Absolutely not. There were times where Jesus rebuked often very, very directly people and, and told them they were wrong. 
that, that they were completely wrong. Let's look at a few examples of this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he's talking to the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers. He calls them a name. They're wrong, but he also calls them a name. He says, how can you speak good when you're evil? Why do you think Jesus did this? We're told two verses later, he says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, that everybody, every, every, every person will give an account for every careless word they speak. Jesus was warning this, these, these people here. But he had no problem telling them that they were wrong. They're wrong. In Matthew 22, there were some Sadducees there that were asking Jesus about the resurrection. He said, you're mistaken. You are wrong not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus had no problem telling these people that they were wrong. Sometimes people just need to hear what they need to hear. And I say that, and what I mean is sometimes telling that person that they're wrong is okay, so long as it's done the right way. Matthew 23, not once, not twice, but seven times, Jesus told the Pharisees, those Jews there, he told them they're wrong. It's the seven woes. He, he called them hypocrites. Yes, Jesus had love and compassion, but he also told people they were wrong when it needed to be said. Why do you think Jesus did this? Let's look at one final example about how Jesus rebuked, and I think we'll see the entire motive behind why Jesus did this in his teaching. In Mark chapter 10, you recall the story of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered by giving some of the commandments from, from the Old Testament. And the young man answered, he said, I have kept these from my youth. At this point, Jesus could have very easily said, you know what, that's great. You just keep, keep keeping those commandments the way you have been, and you'll be saved. Is that what Jesus did? No, we know it's not. That's not what Jesus said. Verse 21, this is what Jesus did, and pay, pay very careful attention to this. Jesus looked at him. He looked at him, and he loved him. Jesus loved this man and then told him, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. He told this young man what he needed to hear. Why? Because he loved him. That needs to be our motive as Christians and teachers and preachers whenever we rebuke somebody. We need to make sure that whenever we do this, we do it with the right, with the right motive or the right formula, if you want to uh, think of it that way. The two things, if, 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 if we're going to rebuke somebody, Number one, it has to be, or it better be, with the authority of God. It better be with this. I'm not going to go tell you that you're wrong because you're wearing a certain color shirt that I don't like. That's just my opinion. But if I can point to Scripture in the Bible and tell you that you're wrong based off this Scripture, then that's what I should do because I love you enough to do that. But that motive needs to be love. We're not trying to, to make that first, uh, to make that person feel bad enough to say that Jesus can't, can't save me, he can't, he can't do this for me. We do it because we love them. We want them to change. That's the reason that we do that. Our elders and our preachers have been commanded to rebuke. Listen to the way Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says it, talking about elders. It says that they are to be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. Our elders should be rebuking people. That's part of their job. And if you've ever been rebuked, thank them. Thank that person enough for telling you that you were wrong because they care, they love you. That's the whole point behind it. 
2 Timothy 4, 2, we already mentioned this verse. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. Preachers are told to rebuke people sometimes. Sometimes you hear the saying that he stepped on my toes. That's okay. If your toes got stepped on, they probably should have got stepped on. It's okay to rebuke people so long as we do so with the proper motive and with the proper authority of God. Paul said in Galatians 4, 16, he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Have you ever gone to somebody and told them that they're wrong or that what they're doing is, is sinful and they get mad, they get offended and they get mad? It's going to happen. Sometimes that happens. You know, we live in a society and culture where everybody gets offended about everything. We have to tiptoe around people because we don't want to make them upset or hurt their feelings or or cause any kind of disruption. We want to keep the peace. But there's something as Christians that we need to be offended about. Day and night, no matter what it is, we should all be offended at sin. Every time it happens, we ought to be offended at that. And more so, when you look at a brother or sister in Christ who have fallen away and they're living in sin and they know they're living in sin, what does Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 tell us? It tells us that they trample on the Son of God. They trample on my Lord and my Savior who came to this earth and died for us. That should offend me. If I'm more worried about hurting their feelings, what does that say about me? I care more about them than I care more about my Lord who came and died for me? That should be offensive to us. Sin should be. You know, it's easy to rebuke sometimes. If you look at a list of sins that are listed like in Galatians chapter 5, we read about adulterers, fornicators, murderers, drunkards, there probably isn't a single person here that would have a problem saying, yeah, that's sin, and you're living in sin by doing that. But when's the last time we have rebuked somebody for not showing up to the services Sunday night and Wednesday night? Brethren, it's not optional to be here. That's a whole different lesson in and of itself. Hebrews 10.25 commands us to be here, and we could stop there. But number two, we have elders who have saw fit to meet twice on Sunday, not once and once on Wednesday, we're to be submissive to those elders and obey them. And number three, what does it say about our love to God if we can't be here? No one has to tell you to go, to go watch your favorite TV show or to go to a ball game or to, go, or to go to a concert. Why do we have to be told to be here? That should be just part of our makeup as a Christian because we respect the authority of God. Most, most sermons and and. Bible lessons end with an invitation. I'm going to do that this way. I heard a preacher once say that I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to, try, to try to deliver this in the same way that he did because it was very dramatic when he did it, but I'm just going to simply say it like this. If you could imagine that you were sent to hell for five minutes. Five minutes you, you, you experienced the darkness and the pain and the reality of that place that we call hell. And then you were sent back to earth. Ask yourself two questions. Number one, what would you do different in your life? What would you change about yourself? And number two, who would you run to and teach and beg to change their lives to come back to the Lord and once again be faithful? What would you do? If you've never obeyed the gospel, the plan of salvation is made perfectly clear in the New Testament. 
once you've heard the word and you believe that Christ is the Son of God, you make that great confession. You repent of those sins and you're baptized for the remission of those sins. At that point, you begin your walk with Christ and you live faithfully for the rest of your life. That's what we're told to do to be saved. Maybe you're already a Christian, but maybe you've fallen away. Maybe you've lost respect for the authority of God. Maybe you've lost respect for the truth. Maybe you've been rebuked, and, and, but you're just still unwilling to change. Let's not be guilty of that. If either of these situations that I've described describe you and you want the help of the church and the prayers of our elders, please come forward now as we stand and as we sing.